Hello and welcome to this edition of the Linder Farm Network Field Talk Podcast. I'm your host, Dan Lemke, and today we're talking soybeans. Minnesota is the nation's third leading soybean producing state, annually planting about 7 million acres of soybeans. Minnesota has a robust soybean processing industry producing soybean meal for the livestock industry and oil for food and renewable fuels. Still, about half the nation's production is exported and soybeans are the nation's most valuable agricultural export. For more than two decades, Seth Nave, Extension Soybean Agronomist with the University of Minnesota, has been one of the leading voices in the state's soybean production. Dr. Nave joins me today to talk all things soybeans, including a recap of the 2021 growing season. So, Seth, now that the 2021 harvest is in the books, what kind of year did farmers have across Minnesota? Well, it was, uh, I think, I think the biggest issue certainly was, um, was the drought. Um, that was the big thing. I mean, we had, a. Uh, in my world, I look at things a little bit differently because I, I, I work with Minnesota farmers across the whole state, but I also work across the U S and so, um, farmers perspective is a little bit different. You know, they keep a close eye on what's happening in their farm and in their township and County and, and then less so at a larger scale. So I would say we always have problems like what we had this year with drought somewhere, but we just had it basically everywhere this year. So that was, I think the big thing for me was the fact that, that we had a significant drought that was both severe. It was long acting, meaning it worked the whole, we were under drought nearly the entire year and it basically covered almost the entire state. So it was, um, it was really remarkable from that, from that aspect. And so, um, uh, I think that's, that's the big news. You know, there was Southeast and there were some areas that did get better rainfall. Uh, and then what was really interesting about this year is just when the rains came and what those rains did for us. And I think it was just a lot of the state across, not everybody, but a lot of farmers collected an inch here or half inch there or a quarter, and then an inch and a half at various times, um, not all in one shot, not at all one time, not all the farmers at one time, but we, we collected a little bit of rain that really made a big difference for us. So <clears throat> severe drought, um, but then some, some sort of coming off of that was what really helped us. And we had heard that quite a bit too, is the fact that once folks got into the harvest, uh, they were in many cases pleasantly surprised with what they saw, largely because the quantity of rain wasn't there, but the timeliness was was perhaps uh, better than they had hoped. Is that uh, you know reflected in yields that you've been hearing about around the state? For sure, and then and then soil water holding capacity, of course. I think that was the big you know that's what really provided a lot for us this year, and I think that's really what saved us on the soybean side, especially as the soybean. My feeling is that soybean is kind of a you know, kind of a dumb plant that doesn't really do much in the spring. It just kind of hangs out. And if it's, if it's dry, it doesn't grow much. The corn looked really tall and lush. Uh, but then we started to see corn ro leaves rolling and things in a lot of areas in the afternoon. And I think it was just that the corn was ripping through water and the soybean tended to survive a little bit better by hanging out low, not putting on as big a canopy, fewer leaves, smaller leaves. But then the soybean just kind of kept cranking on late in the year and, and it was able to explore more of that soil and, and capture more water later on and utilize it better. And I think that's those areas that tended to be more happily surprised. Farmers that tended to be more happily surprised by soybean than corn 
it was because they just conserved the soybean just conserved water um, early on that it could utilize then at the end. So a little bit of both. They were able to tap into some deep moisture as well as get some of that really shallow rainfall that came in at just the right time. So a combination of things. And I think that that explains why some farmers were really super surprised and super happy. And then a lot of farmers were just pleasantly surprised, I think. So does that set the stage, knowing we uh, have some areas of the state still short of that soil moisture, does that set the stage for uh, 2022 in any way to have farmers make perhaps different decisions than they had planned? Or, or is it still um, early in the ballgame, so to speak, before they have to make any uh, decisions based on, I guess, agronomic conditions? Well, normally before 2021, I would have said, forget about it, relax, don't worry about it. Our major concern in Minnesota is too much water early, too cold, too wet. It delays planting. It's, it's our number one issue that we face in Minnesota is too cold and too wet early. Um, I'm, I have never, I never thought I would see um, this kind of continuation of a drought that we had last year in 2020. We were kind of short on soil that really led into 2021 and really played a little bit of a role in this thing this year. So I guess I shouldn't be so negative about that concept that, you know, if, if we do end up being dry again next year, this, this will hurt us. But if this is anywhere near a normal year next year in 22, um, being a little bit short on moisture is not going to hurt us at all. We, we tend to get plenty of rainfall in June. I, there's very few Junes that we don't get a really good flush of water, sometimes way too much, um, but usually we get pretty good recharge in June that sets us up. Um, it, we often get a little bit dry again later, but um, uh, we, I think, I think we're going to be in pretty good shape if we have anywhere near a normal year next year. And I know part of your role as uh, agronomist there with the University of Minnesota is uh, research and being involved in projects around the state. Uh, in a nutshell, just talk about some of the research projects that uh, you, you either have ongoing or will be undertaking uh, around the state. Well, thank you very much for asking. I don't, I don't get asked that very often, but that's very nice. Um, you know, one of the most interesting one actually pertains to this directly is we have a really nice research site that the Minnesota Soybean Research and Promotion Council helped us at the University of Minnesota set up. Um, about 2012, we installed drain tile, pattern tile to field, installed drainage structures, and we created a research site specifically for looking at um, how to manage well-drained and poorly drained soils differently. Basically, we have eight blocks that are either drained or undrained because we've turned on or off those drainage structures. And it allows us to look at everything, uh, planting date and tillage and populations and fungicides and everything that we do today, we really can look at and see how farmers should be managing well-drained soils differently than poorly drained soils. So is there, should we quit rubber stamping these fields and just plowing through every acre the same way? Is there a, is there, um, is there a variable rate technology or precision agriculture technology, or is it, should we be farming that rented 80 differently than the, the pattern tiled home farm? So we're, we're working on those questions. We're also looking at nitrogen management in corn. And uh, honestly, some of the most interesting results have come out of that. We've, we've really found Fabian Fernandez and one of his students um, 
Gabriel Payone have found that um, the poorly drained soils actually have a higher economic optimum nitrogen rate. So we actually need to apply more nitrogen on the poorly drained soil. So it's a good, I think there's a there's good supporting evidence for some of the investment that we've made in, in, in pattern tiling some of these fields that it can pay off uh, in the corn yield corn year. And we're looking at a lot of factors in the soybean year, yield year as well. Um, we're looking at interactions with tillage and, and residue cover now with, with these different um, systems. So uh, it's a very large site. So we're able to look at a ton of different things and a lot of interactions all at once. Some of them are showing big differences and some of them are showing smaller differences. Um, and, you know, sometimes we get penalized a little bit for, um, for the drainage. Last year we did, we, we drained off a little bit more of the water. Uh, so the soybean yields were actually a little bit depressed in our, our drained areas. So we have to, we have to, as researchers, we take the good and the bad. Uh, the data is the, what the data is. And sometimes it supports some of our arguments and sometimes it doesn't. Uh, but all in all, we've really contributed a lot to the understanding of how farmers may need to manage poorly drained soils a little bit differently. So a lot there, I'm sorry to go drone on and on. Uh, that's a huge study we've got. And then we've, we're, we're also working on iron deficiency chlorosis on the other side of the state um, in, the, in the Western part of the state, looking at management strategies for iron deficiency chlorosis, trying to basically taking an economic view of what's the role of, of iron chelates versus higher populations versus um, um, versus varietal um, tolerance in, in, in managing iron deficiency chlorosis. So, so where's, where's, you know, where's the best $10 that farmers can spend? Where, where should they put that if they have iron deficiency chlorosis? And, and should they put it all in that really hot spot or spread it around their field? So lots and lots of questions there as well. So those are two really big projects that are funded by Minnesota Soybean Research and Promotion Council. And then the United Soybean Board funds a ton of my work on soybean quality related things. So we're doing a, a lot of lab work and surveys and both on soybeans and soybean meal and food type soybeans and uh, looking at compositional traits that add value for northern soybeans that tend to be lower in protein. So lots of stuff going on in my lab right now. And I was going to ask you about that soybean quality. I mean, we've uh, been actually overseas together, uh, kind of uh, bringing some of that information to end users. Uh, it, what role does the 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 quality portion? You know, again, the the crude protein for northern grown soybeans for Minnesota grown soybeans tends to be lower than in some other parts of the state. But uh, there's certainly other attributes that make them, uh, you know, beneficial or, or even higher performing. And touch on that if you would. Sure. So there's really two pieces of this. One is that we need to always increase the value of what we produce. So we want farmers to produce the highest value crop that they can, because ultimately some buyer wants those soybeans for some purpose. And I, I think we got a little complacent, you know, with this idea that we're feeding the world and everybody just wants to buy whatever we can make. And we're the top producer in the world. Um, but, you know, with competition from South America, we're, you know, we're end up being back kind of on the bottom, being a low cost producer um, and just trying to get our market out there. And so we, you know, one critical piece that's really important in the whole discussion is that farmers are really paid based on, on total tons and bushels of, of soybeans that they sell. 
but those soybeans have to be purchased by someone that has an interest in the quality traits that they carry. And so um, right now our farmers get penalized by low protein simply because the buyers may be willing to pay less for soybeans that are purchased off the Pacific Northwest, which is where a lot of our soybeans end up going out. So it feeds back, it's built into the basis. Um, so improving the basis means we either have to have more animals locally, uh, more local util no more local processing, more local utilization, or we have to make a product that um, international buyers want more, uh, which is difficult. Or we can go out and help market what we've got, and that's that's part of the other half of this question: is how do we how do we best portray what we have to offer in the global market and and give buyers a better indication of the overall value of what what they're buying? You know, the 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 status quo is basically to to market soybeans based on the protein and oil concentrations that they have, and and while oil is very important, especially now with, with biofuels and renewable fuels. Um, uh, the, the oil market's gone crazy, but the protein is still very important for those animals. And we know that protein isn't an, a very good indicator of the overall value of that soybean meal to the end user. So if a, if a soybean meal is 46 or 46 and a half percent, it may seem obvious that that 46 and a half percent is a better protein source for their animals uh, and uh, some buyers animals. But the reality is there's a whole bunch of other stuff in that meal that affects the overall value of it. And so we want to quantify what those carbohydrates are and what the minerals are within those, uh, but also the amino acid balance of the protein itself. So it's the reality is we can now measure things more precisely. Uh, end users are much more um, technologically savvy and have better technology in terms of blending and making these feeds. They have access to more feed ingredients. Um, and so we need to do a better, they're doing a better job measuring the value of what they're using. And so we need to do a better job of measuring what we're producing and then be able to market to them. So again, uh, kind of droning on and on here about this, but it's a real passion of mine. We spend a lot of time. I work with uh, Northern Soybean Marketing. It's a four state group um, that works in, in Minnesota, the two Dakotas, and now um, Nebraska joined this effort to help market these soybeans overseas. Uh, so I work with them on the marketing standpoint. From a science standpoint, I work with the United Soybean Board for measurement, and then uh, the, the USEC, US Soybean Export Council as well. So I work across a lot of checkoff oriented groups uh, to help promote um, what we've got, but also to try to help figure out ways to improve uh, and make a better product for our end users. And you touched on it a little bit with the uh, increase in demand for biofuels such as renewable diesel. Uh, do you see at some point that perhaps folks are growing soybeans a, a bit more for the oil uh, due to that demand and that that composition you know, grows in importance versus the meal, which has typically been the driver? For sure. I mean, this is, uh, I'm no economist, but every single one of those smart economists that I've talked to says the same thing is that oil is going to be the driver. It's the future. 
Um, the thing that I can't get out of the, those economists is, is how hard these processors are going to push to increase volumes through the plants, how many new plants are going to be produced relative to the meal supply. We know we're going to be short on oil for a number of years going forward. The question that I have is how long on meal are we? Is the meal really going to stack up? Uh, how low do meal prices have to go to really support our domestic um, animal market? How quickly can we start making more pigs and chickens and eggs here? Or will this extra meal that we've got hanging around, is that just going to get sucked up in the global market instantly? And, and as soon as the price dips a little bit, then um, we're going to have more animals on feed in China and elsewhere. I don't know. Um, I think it's a good thing, um, but it's going to be very, very disruptive. I think even from my standpoint and looking at the, the from the animal nutrition standpoint, uh, we've really been promoting soybean meal as this high value ingredient. Um, if prices dip too much, uh, and if we're still in need of biofuels like ethanol and other things create scarcities around corn, there's going to be a lot of markets that are really long on soybean meal and really short on, on starch ingredients for and the energy portion of their, uh, of their rations for poultry and, and swine. So that really changes the, the dynamics in the animal um, uh, feeding sector. And we might be seeing larger inclusion rates of soybean meal. And it changes, it just changes a lot of the ways we think about things because we've kind of been stuck in the same kind of economic scenario for a number of years. We kind of shuffle the deck chairs a little bit, move some meal, ASF affects uh, swine in, in China and trade wars, we decrease demand. And so we move some soybean meal here or there. But this thing with uh, the renewable fuels uh, side is, uh, is could be um, in combination with some challenges of palm oil in Malaysia and elsewhere is really an interesting time. And it's not doesn't look like it's any, um, it looks like it's around for a few years anyway. So I think we're going to on top of all the other disruptions we've had in, in the ag market, uh, this is just one more thing that's totally going to change the, the the way we look at this whole dynamic. And that was going to be my last question for you, Seth, is uh, you've been at this since, what, 1998, I believe, with the University of Minnesota, and only a few things have changed in soybean production along the way from there. I mean, do you continue to see this as something that is just, uh, you know, going to uh, evolve and need to be, uh, you know, a, a lot of things that you're riding, a lot of waves, so to speak, that you're riding as uh, as the, um, you know, soybean production develops here in Minnesota. All I can say is that, you know, me as an academic dealing with farmers, I understand that every, there's, there's change every year and we just, farmers have to deal with a lot of change. I just, I can't imagine farming in this environment because both the number of change agents and then the scale of those is so massive. Um, it, I think just the culmination of all the things together, COVID, trade issues, um, uh, all of the, the inputs and the scarcities and fertilizers and, and uh, labor, um, and then the output side on, on terms of where this market is going. I mean, everything is upside down this year. So um, I 
I think I think farmers are dealing it with it really pretty well, and I think it it helps to have good prices out there. I think that certainly tempers a lot of this. It, it takes a lot of the sting away from the from the um, from the anxiety of the change. But um, I think uh, farmers. I think it's a time to be really sharp on sharp with pencils and and sharp and looking for the future. I think there's going to be some opportunities for farmers to do things different this year than they've ever done before to take advantage of some of these market conditions. And so I, 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 I think farmers just have to be careful because they don't want to get, they don't want to be put them stick their neck out too far in a risky situation, but yet this is the year to really make big change uh, because there's, there's some, there's some big factors that are pushing that change on farmers. So um I don't know how it, I don't know how farmers are going to balance it, but I think the, those that do take this on and aggressively make those changes in the right directions are going to come out really uh, on, on, on the right side of this, I think. Do you have a place where farmers can go to uh, um, get some of the research information that uh, you've already uh, you know, developed or, or where would you direct them to, to learn more about some of the work that you're doing and get good info on soybeans? For sure, I think go to soybeans.umn.edu. So that's an easy one, soybeans.umn.edu uh, is, a, is a good one uh, for some baseline information. But I always recommend farmers with specific questions just to reach out to me. Um, I, I have a number of, of usual suspects that ask really good questions, but I'm always happy to hear from farmers. So don't hesitate um, to, to give me a call or drop me an email, um, especially. Uh, it's a really easy way for me to connect and pass on direct information. So no problem, no problem connecting with people directly. That'll do it for this week's Field Talk podcast. Thanks for listening. And be sure to check out linderfarmnetwork.com for additional podcasts, videos, and up-to-date market information.